Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of the VC Bruner podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I am your host Digjay and today I have with me Rajul Garg, founder and managing partner at Leo Capital, which makes early stage tech investments into India, Southeast Asia and US companies. Rajul was also the founder of Pine Labs and Global Logic. both of which are multi billion dollar businesses today before starting leo capital rajul consulted with top tier vc firms such as sequoia and avishkar and was a sought after angel investor in this episode rajul talks about his experience of being an entrepreneur an angel investor and now a venture capitalist he also talks about founder vc fit collaboration and competition among vcs importance of building a personal brand in venture capital and why he thinks fundraising should be a core skill set of a founder today I had a great time talking to Rajul and I hope you enjoy this conversation too. Let's jump into the episode to find out what Rajul has to share. Welcome Rajul, welcome to the VC Pune podcast. Excited to have you with us today. Great to be here Digjay. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, great. So, you know, for listeners who don't know you, uh, maybe we can start with a brief 2 minute summary of your entrepreneurship and investing journey so far. So, Digjay, basically over the last 22 years i've gone from being a serial entrepreneur to being an angel investor and then to being a vc so first 15 years was all sort of entrepreneurship did three companies back to back pine labs global logic and sunstone and then uh, i became an angel investor starting 2012 2013 and made sort of personal investments for 5 6 years and last 3 years have been running leo capital which is an early stage venture capital fund Great, and we'll touch upon your entrepreneurial journey, you know, later in the podcast. But let me start by asking you this: You were an active angel investor after your exits, you know, from the two ventures that you were running, and uh, you were making, you know, very successful bets, you know, the likes of uh, Misho and Shuttle. What led you to, you know, start your own VC fund and raise external money, and you know, go pro after your angel investment uh, stint? Uh, sure. So look, it was kind of a natural next step, right? So I think when you're sort of investing your own money, I mean, that's think of it as playing uh, playing in the minor league, right? When you're sort of still learning the ropes and gaining confidence and stuff like that. But I think if you want to do this in the longer term and do it as a profession, then you want to obviously up the ante, up the scales a little bit. So it was kind of a think. If you think of it, it was a natural, organic next step. People who are doing agent investing. there's only two paths for them right either they become an entrepreneur like a pranalcha again right or they get to a vc fund or they start their own you know so those are a few paths that typically exist for angel investors nobody really gives them a job anymore <laughs> yeah. you know so i think uh, so starting a fund was kind of a natural next step it wasn't too far from what i was doing anyway right and you know what were the biggest challenges that you faced you know when trying to raise external funds and set up your vc fund it's definitely quite challenging Digjay, I think raising a fund because I was doing it for the first time is a, a little bit of a black art, still. I think uh, you know because you don't know who these people are, you don't know what they're looking for, you don't know who to pitch to. You know, so the first few are kind of easy because these are your friends, just the way you raise angel money. You know, from people that you know. Similarly, when you raising the first you know chunk of money, you first put your own. You know, you go to your friends. Like I went to my Global Logic co-founders. I went to people that I knew, but you quickly run out of them, right? Like how many sort of rich people would you know so you know like four or five people and you sort of take their money whatever they can give you but i think you have to go out of that so it was challenging i think a to discover who these you know so investors in funds are called lps limited partners so basically a who these lps were what they looked like what they looking for because it's still a relatively 
risky asset class, you know, early stage venture investing, and then make a pitch to them and sort of, you know, get them to trust you with their money. Um, so I think fundraising took, you know, well over a year for the first fund. And uh, honestly, it has never ended, you know, since we started the fund, fundraising has constantly gone on, you know, in some shape or the other. So I think that was definitely a new thing for me. And it was definitely challenging. Right. So tell us more about, you know, Leo Capital, how the team is structured, what is the thesis and opportunity that you are, you know, going after uh, the fund size and some of the other details. Yes. So we are three people in Leo Capital on the investment side. So it's me and, you know, I'm sort of overall looking at all kinds of investments. Uh, Then we have Dinesh, who's based in Bangalore. And then we have Shwetank, who's based in Singapore. So three of us running the fund. The fund is an early stage tech fund. So we are cross sector, you know, we do everything, you know, we're not doing only healthcare or education or content or commerce, we're doing all of that, as long as there's a strong tech angle to it. And we are usually the first institutional investor, our tech size is typically a million, million and a half. And we do basically consumer companies in India, we do SaaS companies these days, which are generally Indo-US Lot of Indian entrepreneurs have also started venturing into Southeast Asia a little bit. So we're also doing a little bit of that as well, uh, because one of our partners is in Singapore. So that's what we're doing right now, uh, early stage tech fund. We are at this point about 60 million or so under management right now. Right. And if I had to ask you this, uh, you know, how do you differentiate yourself compared to uh, other VC funds of similar size? And, you know, how do you ensure you get access to that quality deal flow at the early stages? I think differentiation is really hard, first of all, because it is a financial services business, right? Think of it like, how do you differentiate one bank from the other? I mean, they're all sort of, in some sense, kind of financial services businesses, right? But I think India still doesn't have that many funds which are started by ex-entrepreneurs. And uh, because they have not been that entrepreneurial ecosystem is still new. So not that many people have come out and started funds. Now they're beginning to be a few more. So that has been sort of our positioning, sort of an entrepreneur run fund. And all of us have been entrepreneurs, me, Shwetan, Dinesh. So that's been our sort of positioning. In terms of deals, I think because I have been investing in Delhi for a long time as an angel, I did 26, 27 investments. Now from the fund, we made 20, a lot of which are in Delhi. So I think Delhi, we are, I would say, generally well-known. So I think entrepreneurs generally find us. They know about us. They want to many times take our money. I think Bangalore, for example, we haven't had historically a deep presence. And I think Dinesh is there now for about a year and that's helping. So I think just regional presence helps. I think your for all VC funds, your own networks also become like a deal source. So now between my angel and fund, we have over a hundred entrepreneurs that we've invested in. You know, so these guys basically over a period of time, you know, refer other people, the employees that work for these companies, let's say Misho and yeah. other companies, you know, they know about us. So they pitch to us, you know, and that becomes a bit of a differentiated deal flow, uh, not just for us, I'm sure for all VCs. So there's a little bit of a network effect, you know, that kicks in once you've been investing long enough, which has happened to us as well. I think thirdly, I would say that India has just so much entrepreneurial activity right now that I think there is enough going on. Like if you're just in the market, you know, people will find you and, you know, there is just so many entrepreneurs looking for funding and starting new businesses that there is generally plenty of opportunities right now in India. Right. And, you know, there's another important metric that people try to track, which is the founder VC fit and, you know, for founders to decide, you know, which is the right uh, VC for you. So flipping the frame of reference from a founder's perspective, you know, what would be your advice to them to, you know, decide on the investor they want to go with, given they have a choice of, you know, choosing the liberty to choose between multiple investors? Yeah. First of all, I would say that if you look at the supply demand equation between sort of VCs and founders, 
I would say in India, the scales are still tilted towards the VCs. You know, maybe they have tilted, become more equal or tilted the other way in the Bay Area, perhaps, yep. uh, you know, because like literally hundreds of seed funds. But barring a very few companies, like barring the super hot companies, which are also typically not at early stage, but more at slightly growth stage. It's very rare to see that there is a company that everybody just wants to invest into. And uh, at the same time, and entrepreneurs get a lot of choice. So I think that's one reality, but it does happen. And I think the choice also gets reflected in who you pitch to. Yeah. So may not necessarily sort of who you get investment from, but I as an entrepreneur may pitch to only, let's say, these five VCs. And I think a fitment around that, particularly, I would say, and there are a lot of sort of partner personality matches, right? When you're pitching to a VC, you know, generally there would be one partner who would work with you. So how do you feel about that partner and how do you sort of, you have chemistry and, you know, do you feel you can work together with them? It's very important. But taking a step back, I would say just the whole growth mindset of that VC is very important. So for example, if you are, let's say a consumer company, right? Like for example, we have a company called Bulbul, which is a commerce, video commerce company. Now consumer companies generally are cash hungry. You know, I mean, in a country like India, they end up consuming a lot of capital you know, before they find profitability and all that kind of stuff. So you do need access to VCs. You would go with VCs who understand that and you know, who are willing to back you longer in that journey. You know, so if you end up with, let's say, VCs who are more conservative around that and let's say they push you towards profitability, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it's done too early, it will curb your growth you know, very early into the game. And that might hurt sort of your overall ambition of what you're trying to do or your market share may be very, very low and stuff like that. So I think you have, you want to just align those kind of things, right? That you're not going to VCs who are inherently not the right investors for your business, depending on the investment that you need. You know, similarly, now there's some sectoral funds, like if you look at Fireside, you know, they do a lot of these uh, CPG type of investments, like consumer brand type of investment. So if you're a business like that, you're probably in good hands with Fireside and they understand this space, you know, they can probably bring strategic value versus a fund like ours. We don't do CPG at all. And, you know, even if we did run off, you know, we would just not be a great fund in, in our ability to help you in any way versus let's say Fireside, which has like 30 of these investments. Yeah, no, makes sense. And, you know, if a founder were to ask three or four key questions to get those answers from a VC, you know, what would, what should those questions be for, for the VCs that they are trying to pitch to? Look, from a VC perspective, I think VCs say all kinds of things, I would say, uh, depending on time and how much they want to do a deal. But I would say the best way to know a VC is to look at their portfolio. You know, I think nothing else is really, you know, as they say, actions speak louder than words. You really have to look at where the money is actually going versus what they say. So I think if you look at any VC and you look at their, let's say, last five, seven investments, right, which they've done, let's say, in the last 12 months or last six months, and this data is all available these days, right? I mean, you can just Google it or it's there on their website. I think that will give you a sense of the kind of investments they're making, you know, what they're looking for. And you have to see whether that aligns with sort of what you're trying to do. So I think that's the best way, uh, if you ask me. I think, and I, I think entrepreneurs still don't do enough on that to really study existing portfolios. Like people pitch to us and, you know, many times they don't really, haven't even gone through our website fully and sort of, uh, you know, really understood what we are investing into, though it's very clearly and simply written for the most part. So I think that's, that's a good starting point. But I think others are, you know, knowing these days it's a small ecosystem. You could talk to other sort of portfolio companies of that VC fund. Many people have friends, friends of friends that you could network to and see sort of how they've been. There's general reputation Anyway, you know, India doesn't have that many funds. It's probably 10, 15 funds. So I think you, there is general reputation anyway that you can get to know if you start chatting around a little bit. So I think those are the ways you can get to know.
Right. And, you know, the funding rounds that we see these days, you know, uh, as you said, the demand supply balance is still in the favor of VCs. But many a times, you know, when you zero down on a startup, there are multiple VCs that enter that funding round. So it's an interesting dynamic. So have you seen, you know, tension between VCs for founders attention or founders, you know, getting flustered by conflicting viewpoints uh, when they have multiple VCs on their cap table? Yeah, I have seen it. Like I said, it's not like it happens with every company, but it happens these days. And these days, especially at seed level, there is a lot of activity. You know, there are lots of funds. Even the bigger funds are doing seed rounds. The smaller funds like us are also doing seed rounds. The angels doing sort of seed rounds. When you put it all together, I have seen it that sort of a founder has multiple sort of interests and they have to somehow balance the amount of money. Like let's say everybody wants to get in, wants to get in, then their round size may get bigger, which may be more dilutive, you know, or they may have to say no to some of the VCs. I think generally what I've seen is that it's still kind of hard to find the lead VC, you know, who says, okay, I'm ready. And generally once you have a lead VC, I've seen this lot more interest, like suddenly sort of the floodgates open and a lot more people. It's happened to us many times recently, you know, that once we sort of gave an offer, then there are a lot of other VCs, you know, who suddenly come into the picture. Yeah. So all that happens, but I think, uh, look, it is, you're still limited by your dilution and capital and all that. And let's say you're doing a seed round, you know, generally you don't want to dilute more than let's say 15, 20%. So how much money can you really accommodate, you know, at that point of time? So that becomes a governing factor and generally relationship matters, reputation matters and sort of whoever you feel good with. Yeah. And it's, you know, interesting because it's not the core, you know, expertise of a founder to go out and fundraise. Their core expertise is to build a product and build a business that they're working on. So do you think finding that lead investor is the most critical thing? And after that, they should probably trust the lead investor to, uh, you know, close the round for them. Look, I think generally, I mean, investors do play uh, an important part. And again, different funds work different ways, right? Uh, depending on their own bandwidth and stuff like that. But I do still think that the primary responsibility of a round is with the entrepreneur themselves. But of course, once they have a, let's say we have committed to somebody, then the way we work is that, you know, whoever we think is appropriate, let's say there's gap in the round, let's say it's a $2 million round and we're doing 1 million, then we would introduce them to whoever we think is a good investor into this company. Uh, but they themselves also people know, right? And they sometimes what happens is while they were pitching to us, they were pitching to six other people, Correct. you know, and sort of even we got there first, but the other five are still in the reckoning, you know, so they would go back and talk to them and see who they want. So I think generally it gets formed like that. But I, if I had to pick the responsibility overall, I still think is with the entrepreneur. And, you know, I think it's important to not look at fundraising as a skill, which is outside of business building skill, right? You know, it's part of business building. I would say just the way hiring is part of business building, sales is part of business building. Fundraising is also part of business building, you know? So I think they're all just different aspects of business buildings. Just like, you know, you can't imagine a founder without hiring skill these days. You can't imagine a founder without fundraising skills as well, right? It's equally important and you have to work on it constantly. Right. I think that's a very valid point and interesting perspective because, you know, what we usually see is that founders want to focus on, on their product, on their business, uh, but fundraising is kind of a distraction, but you've put it right. It's an important aspect of growing your business, especially when you want to fundraise and it's not a bootstrapped company. And it never ends. The other point is it never ends, right? I mean, fundraising, these days, fundraising cycles are small. So it's not like that it ends, right? That it, you just do it once yeah. and you're done with it, right? So it, ha- it goes on in some shape or the other, you know, for many years. You know, one other difficult thing that VCs have to deal with is uh, saying no to founders. So Rajul, how do you manage that at your end? And, you know, what's the best practice uh, that you think VCs should follow in this regard? 
I mean, from our perspective, look, when we get a new lead, then basically we categorize into yes, no, or maybe. So no is 70%, 75% of those, right? Because, you know, we don't like the space or something else, right? So those no's are easy to say. I mean, we respond to them immediately on the email itself, you know, and we tell them, look, this is not, does not meet our investment criteria and sort of we can't invest in it. And we generally believe to be very sort of upfront and quick about it because we think that founders are raising capital and there's no point in stringing them along, you know, that they're wasting time with us. It's better that they sort of use that time elsewhere. So we, we believe in sort of fast no's if we have to say no. Like if in doubt, you'd rather say no rather than stringing them along, you know. If it's a maybe or a yes, then we would engage with the founder generally, right? That engagement could last a few weeks. It could la- last a few months also, you know, depending on the business and our comfort level and stuff like that. And, you know, yes is yes, but many maybes also results in no you know, after spending some time, you know, a month or two sometimes. And those are a little bit harder because, you know, I mean, you've taken their time, you've spent your time and uh, and energy. So we try to be efficient about it, but, you know, such is the nature of business. But I don't think it's hard. I mean, it's just, I think it's just honest and, you know, you have to have that conversation. And, you know, again, think of it like hiring or firing conversation these days, employees, companies and companies fire employees. Those conversations are much harder, I would say. That's a much tighter bond. You know, here, I think you haven't really committed anything. You haven't really, you know, you're still sort of just getting to know each other a little bit. So I wouldn't say it's hard, but I do think it's important to be clear. And, you know, if you have to say no, say clearly and sort of, you know, don't string them along. And that's what we do. Right. Uh, Rajul, another feedback that I've heard from a lot of uh, founders and VCs is, is that they admire you a lot and speak highly about you as a mentor. So just wanted to understand what has been your approach, you know, with founders as well as fellow VCs. Uh, you know, maybe there's an important lesson for aspiring VCs here. I don't think there is any sort of one silver bullet here. Uh, honestly, I think it's just the little things. You know, I think one is just because, like I said, there are not that many VCs who have built large businesses before. So I think that experience definitely helps. And, you know, in some cases, uh, we are able to point things out, which are kind of obvious to us, but may not be visible to the entrepreneur themselves. You know, I have, I have this doctor friend who I really like, Shuchin. And uh, I asked him, like, what are the characters of a good doctor? And he said, it's ABC. It's first availability, then behavior and then competency, you know, so I think just availability itself is a big deal. Like if somebody, let's say, you know, let's say I've invested in your company and you want to speak to me, the fact that because we're a small team and you can get to speak very quickly, you know, we can get to the point very quickly, one phone call like this half an hour, that itself is a big deal. Just that somebody listens to them and, you know, is thinking from their side. And then I think competency comes much later, but, uh, but it's just those kind of things, uh, Dick Jaron, or to tell you, I think it's just I think thinking for the founder, sometimes, you know, there's also what may be right for the founder may not be right for the company and vice versa, you know, so I think finding a balance between what may be right for me as an investor may not be right for you as a founder sometimes, you know, so these conflicts also arise. So I think just basically having a little bit more balanced approach, realizing that this is a long term marathon, right? I mean, VC business is a marathon, you know, there's no 100 meter dash here. So you key, you have to keep going, build that credibility and, you know, build that franchise over years. So I think those are some of the things I would say, which we try to do. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it makes sense because, you know, a lot of VCs need to have that empathy with their founders and try to understand their perspective, which is what, you know, adds real value to founders, especially at the initial stages. They want a sounding board and who can, you know, think as almost as co-founders in the initial journey. But how do you, you know, engage with fellow VCs? You know, it's an interesting dynamic because you are competing as well as collaborating with them on certain deals. And it's a small ecosystem, as you said. So, you know, everyone knows uh, everyone else and you usually refer deals. So it's a slightly complex dynamic. So how do you approach that as well? 
So generally, I would say I would put VCs in two categories. One VCs, which are our peers, right? Like uh, other funds which are writing checks similar to us, right? Other seed funds, Bloom, you know, Orias, and all these other funds, K Capital, and uh, all these funds. And you know, I think we all kind of know each other. I know partners at these places. You know, they know me. And so generally, I would say it's a cordial relationship on both ends. Like for example, we have a great relationship with Bloom. I would say particularly, we have done a couple of deals, and you know, we've always found them very complimentary to us and also founder friendly the way we like to think of ourselves i think we find it very easy to deal with them we would go to them let's say if there was a gap in a round uh, that we wanted to fill up i don't think we see that much competition from these peer funds because they just don't have that kind of deal volume yeah i mean all the like we are doing a few deals a year they're also doing a few deals a year and usually they all have their own sort of focus areas. So we don't feel as much competition. It's not like, you know, there's a deal and they will do it or we'll do it. I think the larger funds, like if you look at the, you know, the bigger funds, Sequoia, Upsef, Lightspeed, Matrix, Nexus, they're all also doing seed deals these days. And there is a lot of volume too. Like with Surge, there's a lot of volume, you know. So I think there, I would say there's a more sense of that we can lose a deal. They are in the fray because, you know, they can cut a larger check, you know, they have bigger brands, you know, they have more bandwidth and stuff like that. So I think at the time of doing a deal, you know, if you know that one of the bigger funds is in the fray, we would sort of be more urgent about it and, you know, try to close it down. But, uh, you know, once we are co-investors in a company at a board level or as shareholders, you know, we all working for the same cause. We all want to make the company successful. So that is much easier. I, I think, again, sort of these are all smart people and they all have the same objective. Uh, in fact, in many cases, we would defer to them you know, if they're larger funds, you know, they have seen companies at a bigger scale. So many times we would defer to their judgment and, you know, many times they would defer to our judgment when the company is smaller and you're looking to make more tactical decisions, you know. So I think it's a, I think it, it finds its balance. It's not very hard. Right. And like you said, you know, the bigger VCs, it's the brand that attracts founders to them. And the smaller VC funds, they are primarily, you know, run by individuals and it's the individual brand which attracts founders to them. So, you know, for an aspiring VC, you know, what would be the two or three key skill sets or, you know, brand building ways that you would recommend uh, to, you know, to be attractive to founders? Yeah, I think uh, it is a, it is a services business at the end of the day, you know, so individuals matter a lot. Like even if you go to a big brand VC, you know, you will hear many founders crib sometimes about either this partner or that analyst or that VP, you know, so while there is an overall fund brand, but also I think each individual has their own mini brands within these funds, right? Because they're all become big and founders know that too. That's what happens with smaller funds as well. So when they're, let's say, comparing our fund to a large fund, they would compare me to the individual that they're dealing with there, you know, and uh, that may help us compete if that, let's say, I'm more experienced than that individual or I've come across as, you know, friendlier than that individual. So for a aspiring fund, I think building this personal brand equity, I feel is important to start with versus the firm, because, you know, you can't really build a firm brand equity. I think it takes years, right? I mean, these funds are like, you know, 30, 40 years old, even in India now, they're 15, 20 years old, right? It takes a very long time to build a firm brand. It doesn't happen overnight. So I think building more individual equity, individual relationships. So for example, you know, let's say, you know, you said that you work with JP Morgan, right? Uh, in between. So I would say, you know, maybe sort of starting with that network, perhaps with people that you know, you maybe going back to people ex JP Morgan who are starting companies, just starting with that because you have something, you have a greater connect, you know, and they can trust you with that. So I think building a network like that, basically, which is more personal oriented, I feel is a better way to get started. Uh, at least to start getting deals and, you know, to be able to connect to the entrepreneurs. I don't think you can win the brand game. Absolutely. 
Uh, I want to switch gears here, Rajul, and you know, talk more about the serial entrepreneur, Rajul Garg. And you started up entrepreneurship when it was not mainstream at all. You built not just one but two very successful companies in Pine Labs and Global Logic. You know, both of which are multi-billion-dollar businesses today and stood the test of time. Uh, you know, eventually. So, you know, when you reflect upon that experience uh, of building these two businesses from scratch, what do you think you got right? You know, which helped you in building such strong foundation for both these businesses. So how much time do we have? <laughs> so I think just because it's a long journey. So there's several things I would say uh, when you think of these companies and what worked and what didn't work. But uh, look, if I have to distill it to, let's say, one or two points, right, which I think we got right. I would say that I have been lucky generally to find the right people working into the companies. So for example, in Pine Labs, you know, we were able to attract Lokweer, who was the CEO. He joined in 2003. And practically, he built the business for the next 15 years. Uh, a new CEO joined in a couple of years back. But I think, you know, it was at that point sort of a big achievement for us to get somebody like him. And then he worked out, you know, and sort of built the business. Similarly, in Global Logic, you know, we had a guy, you know, Peter Harrison that we hired, who was kind of the CEO. And again, sort of, uh, he joined in early 2000s and practically sort of really took the business to the next level. And I'm giving sort of more sort of senior level examples, but even mid-level VP level, director level, I think we did focus, I personally focused on it a lot, sort of bending in the right people, whatever it takes, uh, and making them productive into the company. And I think we got that right for most part. I think uh, there were some mistakes, obviously, some people didn't work out, you know, which is natural. But on the whole, I would say that worked out for us in both of these companies. And if I had to pick one factor, I would say, you know, that would be that would be a big factor for the success of these companies and especially more lasting success, right? Which has gone way beyond now the founder and sort of anybody else or any individual for that matter. I think what we didn't get right, I would say in Pine Labs, it was the timing. I think for me, I think it was too early. So I started in 98 and, uh, you know, the whole payment thing and all that was still very, very new in India. And actually the company, I would say, if you study the history, it really only started exploding, I would say in early, like 2013, 14 type of timeframe. You know, so it was like a long 16 year journey, you know, before the hockey stick really appeared in a significant way, which obviously, you know, is very painful years, some for me and some for other people who are running the company. So I think uh, the timing was wrong. Eventually, we, the timing caught up to us, right? But it took a long time. And I think uh, so that was the thing I can think of Fine Labs. I think in Global Logic, we had a couple of false starts, I would say. Sort of, we had a 9-11 episode during the company and company did a couple of early pivots, you know, which ended up sort of wasting a lot of capital and time in the first two, three years. Ended up also being very dilutive to everyone, you know, because when you pivot, you know, you lose capital, then you raise bridges and then you raise more capital. I think that was sort of one false step in the first two, three years. After that was actually quite a smooth journey, I would say, for the following years. So I think those are a couple of things I can think of. Yeah. And you mentioned equity, right? And it's an interesting point because founders, you know, while they're fundraising, that's an important element, which sometimes, you know, founders tend to miss. They're looking at the funds which are coming in and which will help them survive. So they're not wrong in prioritizing that. But at the same time, there should be enough skin in the game for them. And maybe it's important for investors as well, for founders to have enough equity. You know, how would you advise founders to manage that balance, uh, you know, when they're fundraising? So what, I, what I've seen, Vijay, is that you know, cap table equity in the long term, it kind of takes care of itself. Equity ends up going to people who have added value and who kind of deserve it. So I, I really believe in it. I think, you know, in the, if you take a slice at any point of time, it may not look that way. You know, sometimes it goes more in one direction versus the other. You know, it has its own AI inbuilt, I think. 
and it redistributes itself to the stakeholders who matter. You know, there are many instruments like ESOP pools, you know, these days, you know, founders are topped up as well, you know, in the later stages of the company, if need be, fix that equity ownership. You know, you always also want to incentivize outside management that you're bringing in. So Captable usually finds its way. I would say that I think when you're raising capital, then think about it this way, that it's a fair market process, right? If you have pitched to, let's say, you know, six, seven, eight, ten 10 VCs, right? And you've run a process of sorts and you've gotten an offer of X amount of dollars for X amount of equity, then that is the price. You know, there is no other determinant of price which came from your mind or which came from somewhere else, right? Because it's a market making process. So I don't think you can take these things to heart. I mean, this just just the way if you get a better price in that market making process and that's the price if you got a less price then that's the price and you have to just keep going and that's basically the way it works you know i don't think you can get emotional about it you know i've seen founders who say you know like i want this price for example but it has no basis yeah you know i mean it's a it's a purely market making process especially when you don't have enough data points to value the company right right if you think about it from like if you apply the public market metrics, right? The bidder multiple and P, then all startups are valued at zero, right? I mean, there is no, so it's very, very beauty lies in the beholder type of thing. Absolutely. So if you had to pick a number, you know, if you're uh, evaluating a company and uh, say it's a pre-series company, what's the equity that you want, you would want founders to retain, you know, at least uh, by the time you start raising series. So pre-series, what's the equity that founders should retain? Yeah. So when we are investing, we typically invest like a million to million five, like I said, and we try to end up in the vicinity of 15%. Sometimes it can be a little bit more, 16, 17%, sometimes can be a little bit less, you know, 12, 13%, but that's our range. And then you provision some ESOP pool on top of that. So another 10, 12%, you know, so I would say the rest of the equity would be with the founders. And maybe sometimes there's some angels, they may have done an angel round diluted a little bit, you know, 10% there maybe. Yeah. You know, so I think, um, so that's typically how a captive looks like when we invest and uh, we think that's kind of a healthy balance. You know, we need to build ownership sort of uh, for our returns, but I think there is enough in it at that point for the founders that they can sort of, you know, raise more capital, still own more equity. Right. Fair enough. So Rajul, you know, you started off uh, right after IIT Delhi and after graduating, you started your own company. Uh, but for a lot of those who are, you know, currently working at corporates or currently in their own professional journeys, but are still, you know, contemplating whether to take the startup plunge, you know, what would be your advice to help them rationalize that decision and uh, evaluate whether to take the plunge or not? Look, I think I had a, I have this story that I have this cousin who came to me, you know, two, three years back with exactly this question. And my answer was to him was that don't do it. You know, so my advice would be to anybody who's in doubt to don't do startups. And I think when there will be a time, maybe hopefully where sort of the doubt will melt away and you will feel fully ready. So do it then. You know, if you are in doubt, then don't do it. It's a risky proposition. You've been working for a few years. There's a lot at stake. There's families, there's EMI, there's financial pressure, there's kind of other things. It's not the same. Like when I started, I was just like a bachelor, right? There was hardly any expense. There's no real opportunity cost. But I think if you've been working 10, 15 years, then it is a more serious decision. So my advice is don't do it. And I think like in the case of my cousin, he listened to me and then six months later, he still went ahead and did it, you know, and he never came back to ask me again. And then once he did it, then I said, look, you're ready now. So you did it. (laughs) So my advice is don't do it. Yeah. So unless you get that clarity yourself, don't try to seek answers. Uh, You know, if if you get clarity, you'll get it. And then eventually it's best tip to take. And then you don't need anybody else's advice. (laughs) Well said. Well said. So Rajul, that brings us to the rapid fire round. And I'll shoot some questions to you and hope to get your honest, immediate uh, thoughts on the same. Okay, let's go. All right. 
first question one myth about venture capital that they make a lot of money <laughs> money in venture capital is very back ended and it's very hit and miss right so only unless you have had like large wins it's not like that vcs make a lot of money one thing that you would like to change uh, to improve the state of the indian startup ecosystem i think i would love to see more um, peers helping each other i would say and i think if i can do something in that like when i look at let's say barrier i see lot more fraternity yeah you know and sort of brotherhood among startups and sort of even in terms of product adoption and you know other stuff i think it's beginning to pick up in india and i would love to sort of see more of that and do my bit to help in that as well great people from the startup ecosystem that you look up to and that inspire you there are so many people i would say and i think i i tend to seek and draw inspiration in different aspects from different people like for example you know we have an entrepreneur flickstock harinder kheer you know he runs this company called flickstock and i just drive inspiration from his energy at every time i talk to him you know similarly i think there are others like who i draw inspiration for just resilience or the mothers who for their big picture thinking strategic thinking you know others for their sort of execution skills so I, i tend to sort of divide this into more than three points i think more like a you know dozen points i would say and you know break this problem and draw small inspirations which are of this nature from many different people last question rajul if you had to give a ted talk you know what topic would you choose i would talk about entrepreneurship in india particularly i think there is i think still sort of there is a western concept of entrepreneurship that we're mostly sort of following and embracing i think but i think there are green shoots of entrepreneurship in india and india is its in unique it's not similarities with us some with china but you know india has its own unique story also so i would talk about entrepreneurship in india specifically okay great so you know for our listeners any final thoughts for you know aspiring and current founders who are listening to this podcast no just hang in there you know keep it simple keep going i think uh, times are troubled also and you know that happens every now and then but keep going and keep it simple and you know it will work out great rajul it's been a pleasure having you on the show and we've learned quite a lot you know through this conversation and uh, hopefully we'll get in touch back soon again thank you vijay enjoy the conversation thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the vc bruno podcast if you enjoyed this episode please let our guest know about it share your thoughts on social media and let them know what were your key takeaways We would truly appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a review on Apple iTunes. This will help others discover the podcast. To get insights and to learn more about startups and venture capital, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We will love to hear from you there. You can find all episodes together on our website, thevcpreneur.com. We will be back again next week with another VC preneur that is making a dent in the venture universe. Until then, take care and keep shining.